Hey, let's thank the Lord this morning for just his presence and his goodness to us. You know, um, my name is Chris and I'm just so glad you're here. You can go ahead and have a seat. Yes, thank you. I'm so glad you could be here with us this morning to worship. And it's, it's my privilege week in and week out to be able to stand up here with uh, my brothers and sisters in our worship ministry and to be able to uh, point our, our affections and our attention to Jesus, uh, believing that when we do that, that it changes the way that we live our lives in every way. And I can just tell you that I've seen a firsthand example of that in the room this morning. But like these students right here, they were with Jesus this week. And it is clear in the way that they brought their heart and their, their attitudes to worship him this morning. And I was really encouraged and ministered to by that. So thank you guys for leading me in worship this morning for that. So thank you. <clears throat> All right, so we are um, continuing into this series uh, that Pastor Jeremy started last week. And so if you've got your Bible open uh, in front of you, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be in verse four through seven this morning. And uh, Pastor Jeremy started this series last week and he uh, reminded us like so eloquently and only way that Pastor Jeremy could do that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 falls directly between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. So like groundbreaking content. Thank you, Jer, for that. We're so thankful for that. Uh, but, but really it's important for us, you know, I joke about it, but it's important for us to consider the context of where this passage, maybe one of the most popular, well-known passages in all of God's word, where that was slotted in this story of what's happening in, in 1 Corinthians. And so uh, just as a little bit of context, a little bit of review, let's, let's rewind a bit into chapter 12 and see what's actually happening that sets up this passage that we're gonna be in today. So in chapter 12, Paul is challenging and encouraging, encouraging the Corinthian church by saying that every single person who is a part of the body has been uniquely given a gift by God to be able to advance and to build the kingdom of God. He has given each person a unique gift. And he goes on and says that it's like the, the, the body is like an actual body that has many members. Each person is valuable. Each person has, has worth and has potential. There's not a single person in that church that is, in our church, I would even argue, that is exempt from doing the work that God has called you to do using the gifts that you have been given to do that. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 12. And then he gets to this little bit in the end of chapter 12, where he says, yet there is still a more excellent way. And that more excellent way, which is the theme of this series, the theme of our, our, our study this morning is the way of love. Now in, in chapter 14, he's gonna get, go back to gifts again. He's gonna go back to the specifics of how some of these things should be working out. It's, but right sandwiched in the middle of these two uh, encouragements about how to use your gifts and how to be using them for the purpose of building God's kingdom is this passage on love. I think it's important for us to see that and to consider that because what Paul is saying is that what we do as a church is important. What we do is incredibly important, but more important than what we do is how we are doing it the manner in which that we are using our gifts to encourage and edify each other, to build each other up. It's the way of love. That is the more excellent way. Now, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and make the bold claim that there isn't maybe a more um, popular or, 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 or just a well-known idea or thought or emotion or feeling in our world today than this idea of love. Right? Every book has been written about some component of love. Every song that you hear on the radio has something to do with love. Every movie has a love component to it. Love is all the way around us. And on top of that, our culture, the world around us, has tried to tell us what it actually means or tried to define what love is for us. And the way that they have defined love and the way that we, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of believing this, is that love is primarily about you. Like you need to do what makes you feel happy. 
You should date or marry somebody that is compatible with you. Like you need to find yourself. You need to learn to love yourself before you're actually able to love others. That's all, that, that kind of teaching is all over our world today. And I think if we're careful, if we don't like pay attention too closely, we, we, we can very easily slip into thinking that same way about Christian love, about the love that God has commanded for us to have each other. It's so easy for that mindset to slip into the way that we think about loving each other or the way that even God has love for us. And so let me explain this a little bit. Maybe you've heard this analogy before. I know that I've probably even taught this analogy before, but it's this picture of a cup, right? Like we are, our our hearts, our, our ability to love is like this cup. And as we spend time with the Lord, he fills our cup up. And then out of the overflow of that cup is the love that flows into the world and to those around us, right? Anybody heard this before? Yes. And so sometimes what do we say? Like when we're having a lack of love flowing out of us, like, oh man, I'm just feeling so empty. Like I need to retreat back to God's presence. I need to go away from the mission field and just like spend time with the Lord and and be filled up again. And it's a very familiar way of thinking that has crept into our way of interacting and loving each other as a church, but I don't think that that is what Paul is teaching in this chapter. We're going to see that here in just a second, because here's a problem with that understanding. If I view myself as a cup that God needs to keep filling up, and only when I'm full will the world actually get to access the overflows of that, I have made God's highest form of love myself. I've said that it's dependent upon me. It's dependent upon me having my heart full for the world to actually be able to access the love of God. But what we're gonna see in this passage is that Paul's gonna tear down this cup mentality and he's going to use the word agape. Now, Pastor Jeremy talked about this last week. Agape is like the highest form of love imaginable. It is completely selfless. It is sacrificial. It is saying, I'm going to give and give and give, not needing or desiring to receive anything in return. That is the love that Jesus showed you and me on the cross, right? That he gave himself up for us because he loved us. Agape love is about self-denial. It requires us to die to ourselves. It's why John Piper, when he was talking about this particular passage, he, he once said that the opposite of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not hate, but it's pride. It's thinking and focusing on yourself. So I I don't believe that we are meant to be cups or private reservoirs of of God's love, right? So what are we to be? Well, hold on to that thought. We're gonna come back to it at the end here. And we're gonna right now dive into this passage and see exactly what Paul has says love is to be. So if you've got your Bible open, go ahead. uh, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse four. You can follow along as I read. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray together. God, as we look to your example of love for us, as we see that so clearly laid out in this passage, God, would you lead us to a greater understanding of what it means for us to to love others? And would you uh, transform our hearts and our abilities to do that for your glory, Jesus? It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, so before we jump into this, there's two quick observations that I wanna make about this passage and to make sure that we're all aware of. So first, the, the word that Paul is using, love, that he uses three times in these four verses, that is the word agape. That's that selfless, sacrificial love that we talked about. It's God's love most vividly seen in Jesus on the cross. 
that's the first observation. The second one is that there are 15 descriptive statements about love in this passage. And in the original Greek, what, what this text was originally written in, every single one of them was written as a verb, not as an adjective, like it got translated into some of our Bibles. They are all active verbs. And so what we can kind of deduct from these two things together, that, that this is an agape love that has 15 actions associated with it. This is our big idea for the text this morning. God's way of love is the active pursuit of the good of another. God's way of love is the active pursuit of the good of another. So as we dive deeper into this text, you know, uh, Colin encouraged this earlier. I'm not gonna call you a nerd, but, uh, but he encouraged the, the, the taking of notes, the active application of, of God's word to your heart, to your life. And so I just wanna encourage you to do the same thing. As, as we work through this passage, and if you see evidences or uh, maybe attributes of love that are not present in your life, just mark those down, circle them. The ones that you want to see God transform and refine in you, circle those things, write them down, and we'll have an opportunity to engage with those here at the end. But let's dive into this text together, all right? So our first point this morning is God's love extends goodness. Love is patient and kind. Now, like I said earlier, the original Greek has these two words, uh, is patient and kind, as actually uh, written out as verbs, not as, as descriptive qualities. And one of them is more of a proactive uh, way of thinking about extending goodness. And the other one is an active way of extending goodness. And so what it could be translated as, instead of love is patient, excuse me, is love does patience. Or instead of love is kind, love does kindness. Actually, like for the first time in my life, I was thankful for the King James Version in the way that it, uh, it, it, it captured this. It says charity or love suffers long. Like it's, it captures this idea of it is an active move. It's not just a descriptive quality, it's active. And if we look closely, we'll see the proactive and the active nature in each of these verbs. So first is patient. This is the proactive extension of goodness to those who, who might need it, right? This captures kind of the heart of like a posture that is always standing ready to grant goodness. <clears throat> I think about like my, my two little boys that I have, Brooks and River, they're four. Any parent understands and knows this, that every single day of your life, there will come a point where your patience will be tested with your kids every single day. It'll happen at one point. And having a heart of wanting to extend goodness that is patient, that does patience, that suffers long, is that I have at, in my hands goodness that I'm always ready to grant in those moments when, when my patience is tested. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's like, I've got this goodness that is ready and waiting so that I know that the, 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 the trouble's gonna come. And when it does, I've got goodness to give to you. That's a proactive posture of goodness. But also he talks about an active extension of goodness and that is the is kind part of this section. And now, in the Greek uh, that Paul wrote this in, and this was originally written in, that verb for is kind, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, but it's, <clears throat> it's capturing two different ideas. And it's not, it doesn't exist anywhere else in, in scripture and it doesn't exist in any Greek text before this. And so some scholars believe that Paul just made up a word here, which is kind of cool. I love that because I make up words all the time. But, but, um, but what he's saying here is he's capturing two different hearts here. One is like it has kindness in his heart, but also it does goodness. It's these two things together. It has kindness and does goodness. He's capturing this idea that extension of goodness, being kind, is not just about something that you feel in your heart. It has to overflow into an active move towards that person. He's saying that you cannot divorce those two things, the kindness that you feel in your heart for somebody from an active pursuit of goodness in their life. 
It has to be both. Paul's intentionally combining them on purpose and he's trying to make a point with that by making up a word to capture something that didn't exist before this, right? So these two actions, patience and kindness, take note of this, they represent God's heart towards us also, right? Think about it. God's patience or his loving forbearance was seen in the way that he holds back his wrath that we deserve rightfully and he holds it back because he's patient with us. And his goodness, his kindness is shown in the countless ways every single day that we see his mercy just freely given to us. It's his heart, it's his posture for us. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul is starting his little lesson about what love is with a picture, a twofold picture of what God's love is and what God's heart is for us. This has to be something that we are pursuing daily. We have to be intentionally, <clears throat> actively, and faithfully pursuing the good of each other, both proactively and actively. This, uh, this coming Wednesday is a big day for me and, and Lauren. This will be our, our 10th anniversary. And so we are taking the, the week off to have a little bit of a staycation and celebrate uh, just the, what God has done and the, the thankfulness that we have for each other over the last 10 years. And the irony is not lost on me that I was chosen to study and to preach this passage on love like right before I'm about to go on to a vacation with my family. And it's almost as if like, you know, Laura was like, hey, Brian, could Chris preach that love passage right before we go on vacation? And, and so, no, she was, she was joking with me earlier. She was like, man, I, I cannot wait for the boys and I just to be the recipients of all of your study of this passage this next week. It's gonna be so great. So that's what I'm going into. I'm calling this week my sanctification. So... <laughs> Thank you for that laugh. I wasn't sure if it was gonna happen, so <clears throat> I appreciate that. But please hear me on this. You know, one of, the, one of the clearest pictures of proactive patience and an active goodness in my life has been through my relationship with Lauren. And um, I, I try, I'll try to paint this picture for you, but, but you know, we are a husband and wife that also work together that also uh, she serves under my leadership in our worship and production ministry. And those blurred lines of, of relationship and uh, expectation can create a lot of confusion at times or opportunities for uh, the enemy to come in and try to divide or to break that apart in the different ways that we interact with each other. Like, are you speaking to me as my wife or as my coworker? Like all of that, like there are plenty of opportunities for that. And Lauren has been so exemplary in the way that she has been proactively extending patience to me because Lord knows that I'm gonna give her plenty of opportunities for that, but also an active pursuit of goodness on my behalf. And I'm just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the way that I've seen a picture of that in my life. But again, I want, I want to remember, I want us to remember where this passage was placed. Remember, like this is the passage that's preached at weddings a lot of times, but it's not intended for a wedding. It's intended for the church. It's intended to be placed in, in this context of how the church should be engaging and acting with each other. And so across the aisles, across the rows in this room, there has to be an active pursuit of kindness and patience with each other if we are, have any desire to be effective on mission for God. It has to be present in the way that we pursue each other. It has to be present in the way that we love each other. That's why we've made this one of like the, the clauses of our mission statement. We say we exist to glorify God by loving God, loving others, and making disciples of all nations. That second clause, loving others, is so important. We want to, the quality, the character of our, of our work to be defined by the way that we love each other. And we do that by pursuing proactive patience and active kindness. And so, you know, one of the ways that we've, 
wanted to highlight this or to give us opportunities to practice this has been through our Summer Love Challenge. You know, you might've been hearing about this, but we want to hear stories of the ways that you are taking the love that God has given you and shown you and extending that proactively and actively into our world around us. And so you can go ahead into the app at any point and and submit, give us a little story or a testimony of the ways that God has been using you to do this work. And we wanna celebrate that and we wanna rejoice in that together. It's, it's, It's valuable to do that. We have to have a constant pursuit of these things. Proactive patience and active kindness. This is God's way of love. It's his always active pursuit of us. And we have to have an always active pursuit of each other. It's the extension of goodness. It's how God loved us and how we need to love each other. That's the first point of this passage. God's love extends goodness. Secondly, God's love rejects fleshly desires. Now, in the notes, it says selfish desires, but I, I submitted the notes and then I was doing a little bit more study and realized that fleshly desires is actually a better word. So you can just cross it out, write fleshly desires in your, in your notes there. I'm sorry about that. That's my fault. But after the two positive actions that we see in the first part of verse four, Paul is gonna follow up with eight negative actions or eight things that love doesn't do. So it's love does this and this, and now it's eight things love doesn't do this. And what we're going to see here is that each of these actions that Paul is warning against are actually connected to an unhealthy fleshly desire. So your heart, my heart are filled with evil desires. They are. That's why I like the worst advice that we can give to each other is to listen to your heart or to follow your heart because it is filled with an evil desire. Check out what Paul says in in Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So right here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to give eight ways to not gratify the desires of the flesh, right? That he talked about there in that Galatians passage. passage. And so these are the ways that we not gratify the desires of the flesh and it keeps us doing the thing that we want to do, which is loving others. So let's walk through these carefully. And like I mentioned earlier, if, there's, if any of these jump out to you, like, man, I need to work on that, or I need God to refine that in my life, go ahead, circle it, make a note in your Bible. We're gonna come back to those in a bit here. So these are eight desires of the flesh that God's love rejects. First, love does not envy. God's love rejects the desire to have what others have. The heart behind this verb is not necessarily connected to like wanting a thing that something has, but it's more about like rivalry or competition. Like love does not jockey for position. Love does not try to keep up with the Joneses and maintain an image or a status. One commentator even said that it could be read as love is not displeased at the success of others, but instead it can rejoice at others' success. And it even asks the question, how could I better serve those whom God has granted the success that I wanted for myself? God's love does not envy. It rejects the desire to have what others have. So a heart check for us this morning with this particular one. Are are you jealous of anybody in your life right now? Like, how are you actively and humbly seeking to serve that person that you might have a jealousy for? What does that look like? God's love rejects the desire to have what others have. Secondly, love does not boast. God's love rejects the desire to be acknowledged. So the idea here is needing to be seen or noticed for your gifts or for your acts of love. It's not possible for us to boast or to make much of ourselves 
and love others at the same time, right? Because we, we talked about this, like agape love is removing myself from the equation and, and it's dying to myself and pursuing the good of others. We cannot lift ourselves up and, and do that at, in love at the same time. God's love does not boast. It rejects the desire to be acknowledged for acts of love. And so a heart check for, again, for us this morning with this, are you loving others out of a genuine desire to give and to serve? Or is your love more motivated by the way that it feels when your gifts are acknowledged or when your service is appreciated? What's motivating your heart to serve? God's love rejects that desire to be seen or acknowledged. God's love does not boast. Thirdly here, love is not arrogant. God's love rejects the desire to be superior. The verb uh, here that Paul uses in the Greek literally means to puff up. And so there was this like air of superiority in the Corinthian church. Even though they had so many things wrong with them that Paul had to write them two letters to try to work it all out. They had this air of superiority of like, we have got it all figured out. And who are you to try to speak truth into my life? And who are you to think that you can try to correct the ways that we have got our, our loving each other and the ways that we are doing ministry? Like there is a superiority to it. God's love rejects that heart, right? How easy is it for us to do the same thing? You know, somebody brings a correction or a suggestion to us and our first response is, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know my heart in that. That was not what I intended. What, who are you to speak truth to me? Like, what about the things that are going on in your life? We get defensive. We get this posture of superiority. Like, I've got it figured out. It's so easy to slip into that. But God's love rejects that desire to feel superior is not arrogant. So a heart check for you and for me, is your love marked by a character of humility? Like, are you teachable when someone comes to you with correction or with a suggestion? Are you teachable in that? Or do you move quickly to defend your actions? This is the one for me. This is mine right here. This is the one that like the Lord in all caps said, yep, circle this one, Chris. This is me. God's love rejects the desire to be superior. Fourthly, Love is not rude. God's love rejects the desire for indecency. You know, another way of saying this one is that love does not behave disgracefully or shamefully. So for those of us in the room who claim to be Christians, who claim the name of Christ, our actions, our behaviors, our joking, our language, our sarcasm, our teasing are all a reflection of God's heart for, for others. So hear me with this. Paul is not saying to strip out all of the fun that happens in like a friendly relationship when you tease and joke with each other. I think I have faith to believe Jesus was also one who joked around and teased with the disciples. I believe that that happens. I have faith to believe that. But what he is saying is that God's love is not rude. It doesn't behave indecently. It doesn't disgrace the name of Jesus. It doesn't shame the name of Jesus. God's love rejects the desire for indecency. Fifth, Love does not insist on its own way. God's love rejects the desire to do whatever I want. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the message when we were talking about the agape love, so I don't have to say a lot more about this, but I still think it's important for us to check our hearts here. So how did you respond the last time that you didn't get your way? Were you more concerned about other people around you getting their way or were you fighting for your desires or your wants or your needs? God's love is not concerned with that. God's love rejects the desire to do whatever I want. Sixth, love is not irritable. God's love rejects the desire to be easily provoked. 
So I don't know if you are aware of this, but um, we live in a culture that is, loves to be easily provoked. It seems like every week it's like, okay, what are we outraging about this week? Like, what's the new thing that everybody's all up in arms about? It's, it's constantly in front of us at all times. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe news sites or news companies or social media platforms are so profitable because that is an addictive thing for us, that this being stirred up, oh, I've got something that I've got to tell my friends about and get outraged about and have this energy about. It's, it's an addicting feeling of feeling like we're a part of this. I don't even, I don't even fully understand it, but, but for some reason we're drawn to it over and over again, which let me just give an aside as like an encouragement as a brother who loves you and has seen my own self fall into this trap before. If you are saturating your life with talk radio, news pundits constantly telling you what to think or to feel or social media platforms where you are being fed these things all the time, if you're just like saturating your life, if you have a favorite news website that you're going to every day to, and it's fueling your outrage, the chances are, you're being conditioned to be easily provoked. You and I are, are being conditioned to be easily provoked and God's love rejects that desire. But there's, hear me here, there are things that God has called us to be angry with, but sometimes I think we're wasting our energy on lesser things and missing the opportunities to really love and serve people through that. Now, again, remember the context of this passage here. Paul's not... He's not specifically talking about being provoked by culture. He's talking about relationships in the church. But if we are allowing our hearts to be conditioned in other areas of our life, then certainly there will be a bleed over effect into the way that we are interacting with, our, with other people who we love. If, our, if we're easily outraged in this area, it's going to happen relationally too. So we have to be on guard for that. In, in regards to relationships, Karl Barth said, love cannot alter the fact that my neighbor gets on my nerves but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. Love is patient. Love suffers long. Love is not irritable. It rejects the desire to be easily stirred up or provoked. Next, number seven here. Love is not resentful. <clears throat> God's love rejects the desire to store up memories of wrongs. And so this is essentially the idea that love does not take notice of every evil thing that has been done to you and hold on to it. Right? Again, Paul is reflecting here the character of God's heart for us. Scripture tells us that when we are forgiven of our, sin, our sins, that Jesus separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our record of righteousness. He sees G our record of unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' record of righteousness in our place. And we can praise him for that. We can thank him for that. That's a good thing when we are recipients of that. But again, that's not the natural bent of our own hearts. How easy is it for us to cling to that false sense of security or, or control that we have by saying, I'm going to hold on to these things, these injuries, these ways that you've offended me so that at the right time I can bring it back and tell you about it, right? It's a fake sense of control that we have and we need to let go of that. God's love rejects that desire to store up memories of wrongs. So what injuries are you still holding on to? Where... Where does forgiveness need to be extended from your heart to somebody else in your life? God's love rejects the desire to store up memories of wrongs. And finally here, number eight, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. God's love rejects the desire to be the judge. It is um, far too common in our culture to revel in the misfortune of others. 
think about it. You turn on the news and what are you gonna hear stories about? The evil, the things that are bad and wrong with the world and it is constantly being projected in our face. We love to listen to podcasts or watch true crime documentaries to study the different evil in the world or with these expose podcasts that are all about exposing the evil that lies beneath the surface. For some reason, we just are drawn to that and we love it. We love that. We love to exalt, to shine, focus on, to lift up the wrongdoings in our world. But at the same time, I've, I've also seen this in our culture. We have this like desire for ultimate justice. So when the evil is exposed, we want full justice to be acted out, to, be, to have that be made right. Like it has to be full, the full extent of justice to, that matches the evil that was done to that person. And we want to see that right now. And to agree, that's a good thing, right? Because God is a God of justice. And, we, and when justice is served and when we see justice acted out in our world, that God is glorified in that. And that's a good thing to, to, to desire for justice to play out. But God is also a God of mercy. And it's easy to want a just judge to enact the full extension of punishment and, and a full consequence for that act of injustice when we aren't the ones on the stand. As soon as we find ourselves on the stand, we want the merciful judge, right? God's way of love stands in opposition to the way of the world. He's called us to reject our desire to be the judge. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on this section, he wrote this. He said, love refuses to take delight in evil, either in its more global forms, war, the suppression of the poor, or in those close to home, the fall of a brother or a sister, a child's misdeed. Love absolutely rejects that most pernicious form of rejoicing over evil, gossiping about the misdeeds of others. It is not gladdened when someone else falls, especially someone who deserves it. In many ways, this is the most difficult of all, how glad we often are when someone who deserves it gets it. But for the, apostle, for the apostle, love stands on the side of the gospel and looks for redemptive mercy and justice for all, including those with one whom disagrees. God's love rejects the desire to be the judge. It's a hard one, but it's what he's called us to do, right? So of these eight desires that God's called us to reject, these are the desires of the flesh. God has called us to reject all of these. So what he says in, in Galatians chapter five, he said that these things stand in opposition to the way of the king, the way that God has called us to live. I've, I've been reading this book with my boys every night before bed for the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> Some of you might be familiar with it, but it's called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. And it's uh, based off of, you know, the, the Christian allegory, a beautiful Christian allegory by John Bunyan that was written in the 1600s about the story of um, a, little, a, Christ, a man named Christian who journeys on his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's supposed to represent our journey through life. And this book is capturing that story in a way that it's appropriate for children. And, and it translates a lot of the realities in a way that is just really beautiful. And it's really fun. All these little woodland creatures uh, that are interacting with each other. So in this particular story, the protagonist, like I said, his name is Christian, or in this book, it's a little bunny named Little Christian. He is on his way from his city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, he encounters a variety of different people that are set to, to try to lead him astray. Now, he was commanded at the beginning to stay on the straight and narrow way, which is the way of the king. The way of the king leads from the city of destruction to the celestial city, and it is straight and narrow. And along the way, 
he encounters so many of the little creatures that try to lure him away. He encounters a, like an otter named Worldly who tries to show him the ways of the world. He encounters a birdie named uh, Talkative who tries to just talk his ear off and lead him away. <clears throat> but at one point in the story, he encounters an evil creature that was sent by the wicked prince to stop him. Now, a funny part about the story is that the night that we were reading this with my boys, Pastor Brian was the one who got to read this section to them. And so um, it played out. If you know Pastor Brian, he loves to just bring the, the darkness and the gloom. Just kidding. So no, I'm just joking about that, right? So, but it just, it just played out that way. But here's the deal. When, when little Christian encountered this villain on the path, this villain's name was Self. Self was sent by the wicked prince not to distract or to lure little Christian off the path. The path. He was sent to stop him in his tracks and to kill him. Now, you like, might be thinking that's a little dark and gloomy for a four-year-old to read before bedtime. Maybe, yes. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not because it is so important for even a child to understand the danger of self. Self is not just a distraction or an inconvenience that leads us off the path. Self, if we're not careful and we don't have our guard up, self can be the thing that takes us down. And I think it was intentional for the author to paint that picture that way for these little kids to understand that. God's love rejects the fleshly desires that we, that we just read about and talked about because Paul knows that those things are the things that will take us down and God's heart for us is to reject that. It rejects fleshly desires. So look over those eight things. Which one of those things would you say like, man, that's the one that I struggle with. That's the one that I regularly, the desire that I regularly give into. Go ahead and mark that. Circle it in your notes. We're going to come back to it here in a second. But up to this point in the passage, Paul has given us two things that love does, eight things that love doesn't do. And at the end of this passage, he's now going to give us four things that love always does. That leads us to our last point. God's love tenaciously endures. First, love bears all things. It always covers or protects. You know, one commentary I read about this said that it's the character of love to put up with everything. Meaning like there's nothing that love cannot face. There's nothing that love cannot go through. That love has this tenacity to be able to live in any kind of circumstance and endure it and to pour oneself out on behalf of others. It can bear all things. Secondly, love believes all things. This is capturing the idea of always eager to believe, to believe the best. I, had a, I read a commentary that said, this does not mean that, that love is gullible but that it does not think the worst as is the way of the world. It retains its faith. Love is always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. It believes all things, eager to believe the best. Thirdly, love hopes all things, meaning it's always looking forward in faith. So this is not like an unreasonable optimism, which I have been accused of having at times of being unreasonably optimistic and just always thinking that everything's gonna be okay. That's not what it's talking about here. But what it is, is a refusal to see failure as final. It's the confidence that looks to the ultimate victory that will come by the grace of God. Love hopes all things. It always looks forward in faith. And lastly, love endures all things. It always perseveres. Now, the verb here that Paul is using to describe endurance is not like a passive endurance. Like one of my favorite movies is, is Rocky IV. And, and Rocky, when he's fighting Ivan Drago, part of the way that he's able to get the upper hand and beat him is just because he has the ability to endure the beating that Drago is getting him. And finally, Drago gets so tired and that's when Rocky gets the upper hand, right? That is not the endurance that Paul is talking about here. The endurance that Paul is talking about here is more of an 
active, positive fortitude. It is the endurance of the soldier who in the face of the battle continues to press forward, marching valiantly ahead with confidence that victory will be won. It's a love that doesn't just passively stand with somebody who is hurting. Oh, I'll pray for you. But it's a love that continues to stand with somebody and fight for them to continue to endure alongside of them. We will get through this together. We are going to persevere. We will endure. We will walk forward in faith through this together. That's the picture of a love that endures all things. It always perseveres. So love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. The heart of these four actions is, is really captured in the, in the idea that there will be trouble in the world that will try to stop us from doing these things, right? Jesus promised us in his word. He said, hey, in this world, you are gonna face trouble, but take heart, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's the heart that Jesus is calling us to in the way that we pursue love with each other. So let me just give a picture of this to try to help illustrate a bit more of what Paul is talking about this section. So one of the most beautiful or valuable gems that exists in our world is, is a pearl. Now, I don't have a pearl with me, but there's a picture of one here. And we all know that pearls come from oyster shells, but have you ever thought about like how a pearl is formed or made in that shell? Well, I got this from AmericanPearl.com. So, you know, it's a very trusted source. <laughs> says oysters make pearls in response to an irritant such as a grain of sand or another object. When that irritant makes its way into the shell, the creature produces nacre. It's a protective coating that helps reduce the irritation inside the shell. Layers of this nacre coats the uh, irritant, eventually forming an iridescent gem known as the pearl. Some pearls can develop in a period of six months, but the larger, more valuable pearls can take up to four years to develop. So essentially, something hurtful, something harmful, some form of trouble makes its way into the shell, and the, pearl, the, the oyster recognizes that, and instead of trying to just punch it out or get it out of there, it covers it, it protects itself with a, a part of its own body, and something that comes out of itself and covers it and protects it and, and insulates in a way that is creates a beautiful gem that is desired by people all over the world. Charles Spurgeon was very aware of this and he connected the dots more beautifully than I could ever articulate when he wrote this. He said, I would, my brothers and sisters, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell and this vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil and what does it do but it covers it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life by which it turns the intruder into a pearl. Oh, that we could do so with the provocations that we receive from our fellow Christians, so that pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. Man, what a beautiful picture of a love that covers, that tenaciously endures with others. God's love bears all things. It always covers or protects. God's love believes all things, it chooses to believe the best in others. God's love hopes all things. It always looks forward in faith. And God's love endures all things. It always perseveres. God's way of love is the active pursuit of the good of another. It extends goodness. It rejects fleshly desires. 
and it tenaciously endures. So can we put all those 15 actions up on the screen here? The 15 things that God has called us to, this is God's way of love for us. All 15 of those. Raise your hand if you're like, yeah, I'm hitting all 15. Not me, right? I look at that list and I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, man, there's no way that I could possibly live up to that standard that God has set for us. And I'll look back here. That's the point. That's exactly the point. There's only one person who could satisfy that. And his name is Jesus. And he did it for you to be an example, but also to be a way of providing you the ability to love. Look at, if you, you could just put Jesus' name in all of those things. Jesus is patient. He is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He's not arrogant. Every single one of those statements is true with his name in front of it because he is the perfect fulfillment of God's love for you and for me. But what I love about this is that Jesus is not just the standard of love. He's also our solution. He is our solution. We can't do it. So he said, you know what? I'm going to do it for you. And that is why we call him our savior because he stood in our place and satisfied something that we could not do on our own and gave us a way to be able to be made right with, with the father in that. But the reality of this, if you've been taking notes like I've asked you to do and you've taken inventory, is that there are a lot of ways that we fall short of this standard. There are a lot of ways that you and I don't measure up to that. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Like, what do we do with these things that we're feeling convicted of this morning? Well, if remember the cup that I talked about earlier, if we, we go back to that illustration for a second, if we are to think of our lives as cups, then we might say, okay, well, I just gotta go back to the source and I'm gonna retreat you know, from what I was doing and I just need to be filled up with Jesus' love again. And I just gotta saturate myself in that. And once that's full, now I'm ready to go back out on mission for God. And, and there would probably some, be some fruit from that way of thinking. But I don't think that that's what Paul is calling us to in this. If we are just cups that are meant to be filled up and poured out over and over again, we will see fruit, but we will be exhausted from that over and over again. Think about your yard that is in the heat of the summer, turning brown and dry and thirsty and needing water. My yard looked like that a few times this summer. Think about that as the world that is desperate in need of love. And, and God's love for you, God's love for the world is like the spigot on the side of your house that is turned all the way on. We could continue to go over and fill our cup up and dump it out and go back and fill our cup up and dump it out. And that it eventually would get to the world, right? But that would be exhausting. I think what Paul is calling us to be here is, is not a cup, but a conduit. He's calling us to, to be like a hose that is always connected to the spigot of God's love that doesn't ever have to leave the mission field. It doesn't ever have to leave the place where it is set to water, but God's love is consistently and always flowing through it at all times. And when that is happening, we're never empty because God's love is flowing through us. There's no lack of love flowing out of us at all times. We are supposed to be conduits of God's love, not cups. God, not private reservoirs. We are to be active agents of spreading God's love into the world. But there are still times when we look and there is no love flowing out the end of us, of our hose, right? We, we, we're like, man, I'm not as effective on this. I'm missing the point on some of these things. What is going on? What has happened here? Well, the problem isn't because that your cup is empty. The problem is because you've become disconnected at the source. 
And the reality is that for those of us who are looking at this list of things where we are seeing weaknesses in our love or seeing gaps in the ways that we are, have been called to love, the problem isn't because we're empty, it's because we've lost our connection to, to the Lord. And this is the reason why, as a church family, we celebrate communion in our, regularly in our church because we know that throughout life, there will be times when you will be jostled or bumped or there will be a leak at that place. And, and we just need to have a returning back to the source to tighten and secure our connection to Jesus. And we do that through communion. And so this is the time, we're gonna, we're gonna spend some time in communion this morning together as a church family. And I just wanna encourage you, if you've got that list in front of you of the things that maybe you have been wrestling with or the ways that you are feeling like you are not measuring up to God's standard of love, you have some very clear things that you can repent of and take to the Lord this morning as we prepare to, to, to take the Lord's supper together. But also I wanna encourage you in that if there, are, if there are implications of the ways that that has affected relationships with others around you, not miss the opportunity to make it right with them. God's calling us to a, a way of love that is always actively pursuing the good of another. And we have opportunity to, to bring those areas of weakness and repentance to him this morning. And so in a moment, those uh, the ushers are gonna be passing some cups, uh, some trays that have cups in them. And I just encourage you to take each of the cups in the stack. One has the bread, one has the juice. Hold on to that. In a moment here, we'll have an opportunity to take that together. But use this time as the band sings over us to, to bring these things to the Lord, to repent, to remind ourselves that God is the standard, God's, Jesus is the standard of our love, but he is also our solution. To rejoice in that, to thank him for that, to repent of the ways that we have gotten disconnected from the source and then to reconnect our hearts through this time of repentance together, all right? If you are in this room this morning and, and, and you don't know Jesus, if you've not ever tasted the river of life and love that Jesus has for you. We want you to know that. We want you to experience that, to encounter him. So please do not leave today without having a conversation with somebody about that. We would love to be able to, to, to connect with you about that. But this, if that's you, just let these cups pass by you. This is for those of us who are a part of God's family, who have called him our Lord and our savior. This is for, for those who belong to the household of faith. So let's, let's take some time right now Let's take communion as it's passed. Let's, let's hold on to it, be ready to receive it and rejoice in what God has done for us in this time. And we'll take it together at the conclusion of this song. Let's do it now.